Let's keep going in our series. We're, we're picking up where we left off. If you want to put your finger in the Bible, right where we're going to kind of really start reading at, it's going to be uh, Exodus chapter 24. Um, as we pick up with this covenant that God has entered into with Israel. But for the sake of just having it all in our mind, because we're really picking up right, right where we left off, continuing where we left off, I just want a quick review. So, so last week we saw that God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt. They were there in slavery for 400, 400 years. Then about three months after him delivering them out, three months to the day actually it tells us, that they arrive at the mount, foot of Mount Sinai, God meets with them there, um, and they, they, they would end up staying there for about a year. Now that's what really, that, that time is covered in the book of Exodus to Leviticus. Now we're not going to walk through all of this, we don't have the opportunity to do that at this point, but but if you're reading through the book of Exodus, you get to the end of the book, the book of Exodus and it ends with Moses outside the tabernacle that God has given him instruction to build, unable to enter. And Leviticus starts with him standing outside that tabernacle, him not being able to enter and God speaking from within the tabernacle. So he's no longer going to meet God on the mountain or meet in a tent that's outside the camp. He's now meeting God at the tabernacle. That's the book of Leviticus. And then there's all kinds of instructions given about the priesthood and about the ways that they're supposed to, supposed to function as a priesthood and, and how they're to serve the people and all of these things, uh, that, that are given through the book of Leviticus. And it ends with them just about to get up and go. God has them do a census. And just about a year after getting to Sinai, God instructs them to get up and go. Now we're not going to cover all that, but that's, we're, we're moving into that season and that's where we're at in the book of Exodus is they've just arrived. God's entered into covenant with them. In fact, um, let, let's just remind you what we're defining covenant as. So it's not just a contract. He's not stepping in and signing a contract with them. He's developing a, a relationship. So we're defining covenant as a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. That's Tom Schreiner's uh, definition. Um, and then uh, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam in their book, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, they define it as a relationship between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful, loyal love, obedience, and trust. And, and we really see these definitions played out uh, very clearly without any nuance with the nation of Israel as God enters into that covenant with them. So last week, as we as we stepped in, we saw this. This the, the the main point of the sermon was this: God redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt and bound them to Himself in covenant relationship as His possession and priests in the world by His own power and in fulfillment of His promises that God had been making first to Abraham, then to Israel themselves, to the nation of Israel themselves. He brings them out. He redeems them. He blesses them. He engages and delivers them. In a sense, you could say he saves them before he ever actually officially forms the covenant. They are, they are, they are being blessed and receiving God's good works before they ever arrive at this mountain. They arrive at this mountain and he enters into covenant, not so that they could become a nation unto themselves and do as they pleased, but so that in a special way, in a unique way, in front of all the other nations of the world, they would belong to him as a treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, as a holy Nation. That's Exodus 19 verses 5 through 7. And he presents that all to them through Moses, who's ascending and descending the mountain. He's going up to the mountain, meeting with God, and he's coming down and speaking to the people, reporting to the people what the people say or what God has said. And then he turns back and he goes up the mountain and he tells God what the people have responded. And they responded positively. 
In fact, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do this. Now, this this covenant, as we noted last week, it, it is in line with with his. It, it, there's continuity between it and the covenant with Abraham. These were Abraham's offspring. They're the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, right? Like they, God has been doing this work. He's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. He is the father of a, a nation and he's the father of a multitude of nations because Ishmael's off having kids and they're becoming a great nation. Um, but this is God's work. There's a way in which God is working to fulfill his promises to Abraham through Israel. But it's not all, it's not the same covenant. It's a distinct covenant. There's discontinuity. There's distinction to be made as well. And maybe the clearest is the the conditionality of the covenant. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote and posted on Realm. If you didn't read it, man, you missed out. But it, I, I wrote about the condition and unconditional requirements of a covenant. And, and there's really conditional, unconditional requirements and or aspects to every covenant. But but Abraham was unconditional in a unique way in that as the covenant was made, Abraham's put to sleep and God passes between the animals on his own and says, I'm going to fulfill this covenant myself. And if it's not fulfilled, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be laid out on Abraham and Abraham take responsibility for the failure of it. If it's not fulfilled, it's on me. Where we see him working with Israel, he says, hey, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And I have some very specific expectations. Now, generally speaking, we looked at those last week. Holiness and obedience. Be holy and be obedient. You're my holy nation, and I want you to obey me. I want you to do what what I say. So we looked at those things last week, and they're clear expectations. God is not going to fulfill this covenant agreement for them in the same way that he's promised to fulfill it for Abraham. There's very distinct responsibility that they have. And we're going to see that play out further as we as we look at the rest of this covenant today. So we're going to pick it up in Exodus 24. We're actually going to be flipping back to 22 and into 23 to really see how it works out. Um, and then actually we're going to be looking through after it into the to the uh, end of Exodus as well. All those verses will be on the screen. Uh, but I'd encourage you to be ready. Make the marks. Make the notes. Go back. Investigate this stuff. Uh, just just to see that God is truly God. And he has this. So Exodus 24, 1 through 8, we'll pray and we'll dig in. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord and you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Abihu, I don't know why, sorry, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told all the people, all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And that's the third time they've agreed, right? So the first time is in Exodus 19 when they first hear the covenant. Second time, just as they're beginning to hear it. Third time after the sacrifice is made. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's pray. Father, help us now. There's so many things that we're, we're, we're brushing past, summarizing, and just, just considering at, at a very shallow level. But, but help us to see you working in and among and with this people, Israel. Help us to see why it matters for us today. Help us to rest in the fact that you are God. And that even as we uh, really fail to live up to any covenant expectation, much like Israel... We can look to you in your grace. Help us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't, I don't think that the strongest gifting I have as a pastor is in counseling. I just, I don't think that. But I have had a number of opportunities to hone that and to spend time with people offering counsel and providing counsel. Um, and usually it starts something like, here's my problem. And I say, suck it up, sissy. And the person says, well, no, really, this is a problem. Okay, well, let's figure out a way to fix the problem. No, we can't fix the problem. Suck it up, sissy. Trust the Lord. Right? That's the way it tends to go. Now, it's usually a lot more words and a little bit less blunt. But if you spent time with me doing counseling, you know that's pretty much how it goes. Now, I don't know why people keep coming back to my counseling, but I've counseled people inside the church and I've counseled people outside the church. I have spent hours and hours with people who have struggled with very real, deep issues, hard things. One person I remember in particular, no longer in the church, telling me, I just don't know how powerful the Lord expects me to be. How strong am I supposed to be? You're not supposed to be strong. Why are you trying to be strong? Why don't you try to be weak? Why don't you try to lean in on him a little bit? Look to history. Sit with people who think that they've got to make it out. They've got to figure out how to make everything happen. How do I accomplish this? How do I get this work done? I just personally, I'm in my own story. I, I, I wrestled with that. I, was, I, turned, I was turning 40 years old. The only birthday that's ever bothered me in my life. The only one I've ever even thought about. In fact, oh, what was my birthday? A week ago? Was it a week ago now? I didn't even know it was my birthday till somebody told me the day before, hey, happy birthday. And I was like, oh, it is. It's going to be today, tomorrow. I just don't, I don't think about it usually. But man, I was turning 40 and I was like, oh, I'm almost dead. I got to get this work done. Thinking about planting the church and accomplishing and, and seeing us established and safe and secure and, and, and stable. I got to do this. Sit down and shut up. What do you got to do? These are God's people. Certainly I've got responsibility. Certainly I have a role to play. This is God's work. One of the, one of the, one of the arguments of the day that's running around in Christian circles is the, the concern about the end times and, and people are always struggling with, oh, is it going to be pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill? Why do you need to know? Isn't Jesus coming back? Yeah. Does he need you to make that happen? No. Does he want you to be trusting and obedient until it occurs? Yeah. So It's just a struggle. I mean, I sit with people who are struggling, thinking, oh, I've got to bring the millennium in. I've got to... In fact, in our church history class, one 
One of the things that was brought out, uh, the ancient, not the ancient church, the Puritan church, they were mostly post-millennial in view. They thought that God was going to glorify his church and that we're going to arrive at a golden age. It's really the beginnings of the post-millennial view or the strongest development of the post-millennial view through the Puritans in, in uh, the 16th, 17th, 17th century, something like that. I, yeah, I'm not terrible with these, you know that. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta go out and do this great work so that we can usher in the kingdom. Does God need us to usher in His kingdom? Can we not rest and trust and obey and do all these things? And leave the God things to God and the responsibilities He gives us. Take those on. How much angst this kind of stuff, living and glorifying ourselves causes in people's lives. How much stress and struggle people carry. How much weight they bear. Because they're trying to become something before God's made them something. And I counsel through pe- people through that all the time. And the answer is always the same. Why don't you trust the Lord? Why don't you rest in Him? Why don't you do the thing God's asked you to do? Well, what has God asked me to do? What does he expect of me? You know, the reality is, as we look at this covenant with Israel, there's so many lessons for us to learn in it. So many, so many things, that, so many ways in which we can see ourselves being, being typified, so be, being, being shown and being the, the realities of us being revealed. Because God entered into a covenant with them with great promise of deliverance. With great great promise of blessing. You are going to be my treasured people. My kingdom of priests. My holy nation. But I'm expecting something of you. I've got demands. I've got, I've got, I've got commands. I've got things you must do if you're going to enjoy those blessings. As this covenant partner As his covenant partner, God demanded Israel to devote themselves to his glory, entrust themselves to his power, and be obedient to his authority. He demanded that they devote themselves to his glory, entrust themselves to his power, and be obedient to his authority. Moses had been going up and down the mountain. He had been going up three times. He goes up in chapter 19 and comes down and and speaks with the people. And and on this day, he stands before the people just before he's about to ascend again. And he reads the book of covenant. And, and, And he says, this is what God expects of us. This is what God wants us to do. And the book of covenant is likely chapters 20 through 23, the end of of uh 23. Where God has given instruction and God has spoken directly to Moses and he's written it down and he's come back and he's reported it to the people of Israel. Now he's reading this, the the things that he spent time going up and hearing from God and and coming down and telling to the people. He's written this down, recorded it, and now now, now he's speaking to them. And they all agree. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I would summarize that what the Lord had called them to was these three things. Be devoted to his glory. Devoted to his glory. And it becomes evident as you look at the book of covenant, starting in Exodus chapter 20, where, where God is actually speaking to the Israelites and telling them the ten words, the ten commandments, as we would refer to them. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You should have no other gods instead of me that are more important to you than me, that, that stand out to you, that you're devoted to more than me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or, in, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, if he stopped right there, then we couldn't even have statues or artworks or anything like that. But that's not where he stops. You're not to make any of these carved images. You're not to do any of this work. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of his fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the idea is God says, hey, don't build anything that you think is your God and that you would worship and idolize and devote yourself to instead of me. He demanded, he commanded that they be devoted to his glory alone. In fact, it was these first commandments that would actually make them holy as they obeyed them. As we have archaeological evidence from Babylon and other ancient Eastern societies, we have archaeological evidence that demonstrates that the that the do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, that those kind of things, that was a normative, that was a normal expectation of people as they gathered and united in governments and, in, and, and, and as nations. That was normative. That was normal. What wasn't normal, what was unique, what was holy, what was consecrating them to God was the first half of these ten words. I am to be your God. There is to be no other God other than me in your life. That's what he's suggesting. He's demanding total allegiance devoted to his glory alone. And as such, in the obedience of this, though they, he had received them in, he said, hey, you're my holy nation, but you're to act like it. You're to be holy. This is what's going to make you holy or continue in holiness is your devotion to my glory. Next, he called them to entrust themselves to his power. Over and over, he reminds them of this. He tells them at the beginning of chapter 20, or I'm sorry, but at the beginning of chapter 19, when he first engages with them, I, in 19 verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, reminding them, you saw what I did, you saw my power, at the beginning of chapter 20, we just read it. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In chapter 23, verse 25 through 27, he reminds them again that not only am I going to exercise my power for you, I am going to bless you. I'm going to be the God who blesses you, who uses my power not to condemn, not to cause harm, not to create problems, but to bring blessing. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, and I'm the God who's going to bless you. Look at it in 23, 25 through 27. He write, or he says, God says to Moses, Moses writes, and Moses then reads to the people. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. Not you blot them out. Who's doing the work? God's doing the work. My power is going to go before you. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them. Remember, you're devoted to my glory, nor as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, 
and he will bless your bread and your water. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to ensure that you eat. And I will take sickness away from you, among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. You will be fruitful and multiply. See what he's doing. He's saying, through you, I plan, by my power, I'm going to do a work. As long as you meet my commandments and do my and, and meet my demands, live up to my expectations, as long as you do this thing, I'm going to fulfill the promises I was making all the way back to Adam. And in Noah. And to Abraham. But you, you, I've made these promises. And I'm expecting you to live up to these expectations because I'm the God who's powerful. Entrust yourself to my power. I'm going to bless you. I delivered you from Egypt. I'm going to bless you. But I'm going to bless you in a very particular way. I'm going to be the God who delivers the land to you. And I will send them, pick it up in verse 28, chapter 23, verse 28. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. I got a plan for this. I'm going to be at work. And I'm not going to immediately evacuate the land. I'm going to let you grow into it. And as you grow into it, I'm going to make sure. I'm going to make sure it becomes yours. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed and possessed the land. So here we have him first devoted to his glory. I am God. I am to be your God. You are to devote yourself to my glory. You are to entrust yourself to my power. I delivered you out of Egypt. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to be the one who gives you this land. So devoted to the glory of God. Uh, um, entrusted to God's power and obedient to his authority. Obedient to his authority. Seems obvious, right? That, I mean, maybe, it, maybe it's me being Captain Obvious, but these are a lot of commandments that they're expected to obey. Now, he's not saying, I think you should do this. This isn't words of advice. This isn't a counselor sitting in the room saying, suck it up, sissy. This is God saying, this is what you are to do. It's not a question. It's not a debate. This is what's expected of you. You must do these things. Obedient to his authority. As a king to his kingdom carries authority, God is going to carry authority. In fact, he called them a kingdom of priests. A king, a, a kingdom demands that it has a king. Like the, the highest authority in a kingdom is the king. They didn't have one. They had Moses. Moses isn't carrying around a title, King Moses. God isn't establishing a, a nation like any other nation. He is establishing a theocracy in which he will rule as king. He will be the supreme emperor. He will be the supreme authority. And he will interact with his people, with his subjects. And it's beautiful. If this all works, I mean, if you think about it, what, how beautiful this is. If this all works... The distance that was developed in Eden when, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and then hid from him and then were sent from his presence and sent out of Eden. If this all works, then God bridges the gap with man and he interacts and lives with them as their king, as their ruler. All that was broken is going to be fixed. Yes, we want that. Why wouldn't we want that? We want him. We want you. We want you to be our God. We will obey all that you've said we're going to do. But he's not a tyrant. 
He's not, he's not ruling as a king in some tyrannical way, but a benevolent king that, that has already in God's testimony about Israel been, been, been that of a father to a son. Now we didn't read this passage, but, but when God sends Moses into Egypt to bring his people out, this is what God says in Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Moses, this is what you're going to tell Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I'm going to be their king. I'm going to establish a theocracy with these people. But they aren't just citizens in a kingdom. They are to be children of the king. We talk about that a lot as a result of the gospel. God is establishing it in a law covenant. He says, this is, what it's, this, this is who they are to me. So he's going, to, he's going to rule as a father does his son. And not a father like, oh man, some of us have bad fathers, but a good father. As a husband to his bride. This, this can be seen in the, in the union of the ceremony that plays out. So, so we, we, we didn't read everything that we could have read. But in chapter 24, verse 1 through 8, there's this union taking place. Where Moses takes the blood and he puts it in the basin and he sprinkles some on the on the pillars, consecrating the altar that's that's taking the sacrifice, the blood, right? And then he turns around and he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the people, and it it, it, it symbolizes a union being made where two people who weren't related are suddenly related, like a marriage. And then that's further illustrated by the passage that immediately follows. If we read down nine through the rest of chapter 24, we would see that these God that people, these people that God had said, Hey, come up to the mountain. These people go up and they sit down and they have a meal in the presence of God. Like a wedding ceremony. Almost likely, maybe even, probably prefiguring the wedding supper of the Lamb that we all anticipate when we sit down around a table with our Savior. And see the covenant that he's promised finally consummated. So there's this, this ceremony that takes place in which it appears that, that God is illustrating that he's, he's not just looking at them as a son. He's not just looking at them as a king, but as a husband to his bride. And this is further and, and even, I would say, explicitly shown when the prophet Jeremiah speaks about this covenant and Israel's failure of it, he writes, Jeremiah 31, and, and prefiguring and, and prophesying the coming of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He's a king. Who looks at his kingdom as a father lovingly looks at his son. He's a king who looks at his kingdom as a husband lovingly looks at his wife. But he is expecting submission, obedience to his authority. It's not that there's no authority. It's not that there's not, not, not a rule. That there's not some, some expectations, some commands given. It's absolutely there. It's just not tyrannical in nature. But God is demanding, as we look, if, and you, you could see this play itself out over and over in chapters 20 through 23, that God is expecting these people to be devoted to his glory. They're supposed to be entrusting themselves to his power. 
And they are supposed to be um, uh, devoting, devoted to his glory and trusting to his power and obedient to his authority. Repeatedly, he demonstrates that that is his expectation. And I've already alluded to it in the passage from Jeremiah. Israel didn't do that great. In fact, it doesn't even take a month before they stumble and fall. So to, to, to follow the timeline, Moses finishes this ceremony. They go up and they, 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 uh, the, the, the people that God called up go up. They have this meal demonstrating an, a closeness and a relationship and a connection with God. Then, then God says, Hey, you guys stay here, but Moses, you come on up. And Moses goes up and he waits for another six days. And then he's called into the cloud that, that represents God's presence. And he's called into the cloud and he goes in and he's there. And the Bible tells us he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. So a little over a month. You know what happens next? Israel fails. As God's covenant partner, like Adam, Israel failed and proved the law will never produce devotion, trust, or obedience. As God's covenant partner, like Adam, Israel failed and proved the law will never produce devotion, trust, or obedience. Even this first generation. They had the greatest examples of God's power in front of them. I delivered you out of Egypt. They walked through on dry ground. They saw the, 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 the greatest army of their day. They saw it destroyed. They saw it flattened. They saw its power removed out from under them. And God's power reigned supreme. They're standing at the base of this mountain. And they see it covered with smoke and lightning and thunder. And they are so freaked out when God begins to speak. They tell Moses, oh, Moses, you speak for him. Otherwise, we're going to die. And yet... Just a few weeks after Moses goes up, they reject and they rebel. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. Just remember that. Now, I'm not trying to judge them for that. We don't like waiting a week for things. I get it. But 40 days and 40 nights after all they've experienced... When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together, gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make these gods do something, right? Like that's the up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Guys, if you ever wanted a biblical passage that showed men wearing earrings, here it is. Sorry, I don't know why that was, that is, I should have just left that. So, <laughs> sorry. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in, in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And they, they said, the, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel. Man, just think of the arrogance that that takes. After all that they've just experienced and all that's just been demanded of them, these are your gods. And look what they do. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They gave credit to a golden cow, an inanimate object 
It's disgusting when you think about it. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. I wonder if it looked much like the altar Moses had built that he sprinkled blood on. And Aaron made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offering and brought peace offerings. It's the exact same offerings that were offered on the day they entered into covenant with God. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It is an absolute rejection and rebellion against God's commands. Devoted to his glory? I don't think so. Not if you can say a golden calf is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Entrusted to his power? I don't think so. Um, We don't know what happened to Moses. What would have become of him? As if God couldn't protect him or take care of him or sustain him on the mountain. Obedient to his commands. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make idols and bow down to them and worship them. The very first generation failed. Now, Moses on the mountain, you might know the story. Moses on the mountain, and God tells him, hey, you better go down. They have rejected. They have rebelled. They have disobeyed. They have, they have broken covenant. It would be great if that's where it ended and that they learned their lesson and they never did it again. But if you follow the story, through Leviticus, into Numbers, God commands them to get up and going to now lead them through the wilderness to the, to the point where he's going to take them into the promised land. And they get to the promised land and they send in, send in spies to the promised land. And the spies come out. Oh, man, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. Grapes as big as your head. I don't know that that's exactly how they said it. But there's these massive grape clusters that they talked about. Oh, but there's giants. These people are powerful. And all but two of the spies said, oh, there's no way we can do this. And they stood there and refused to go in because they were not devoted to God's glory, because they were not entrusting themselves to his power, and because they weren't obedient to his commands. That's just this generation. What about the next? Well, they weren't much better. And if you continue to follow the story into Deuteronomy, you find that now that God sends them out, they wander in the desert for 40 years to the, to the very last adult that made this decision to stay out of the land dies. Moses isn't even going to get to go into the land. But he, but he calls them, he prepares them, and they get ready. And they obey and they go into the land. They cross the river and he reminds them all. He, he renews a covenant with them. He, 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 he reminds them of all that's happened and he enters into and, 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 and sustains the work that he's doing. But it isn't long before this generation is just like the first. In fact, that's why we have the book of Judges. Of people who are after their own things and going their own way. Over and over and over sent into captivity and delivered by God's good grace. You follow the story a little bit longer and and pretty soon they don't even want God as king. They want their own king. So they go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, give us a king. 
Samuel's offended. He doesn't like it at all. He talks to God about it, and God tells him. It's 1 Samuel uh, 8.10. I've got the verse. I don't think I'll put, put the verse. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people. Oh, that's the wrong verse. Basically, God tells Samuel. I don't know how I copied that one. God tells Samuel, Samuel, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. That's who these people were. Over and over through the book of Exodus, God refers to them. Moses refers to them as a stiff-necked people. And that started in the first generation and it, and it continued in every generation after. As God's covenant partner, like Adam, Israel failed. They failed miserably. And they proved the law will never produce devotion, trust, or obedience. It will never produce the things that God demands of his people. Oh my gosh. What hope is there then? Because I, I think, and as a guess... But I've done enough counseling of people in this room and walking alongside people in this room to know that if left to ourselves, we wouldn't naturally move to devotion to the glory of God and trusting ourselves to his power or obedience to his commands and his authority. What hope is there? As God's covenant partner, like Adam, Israel failed and proved the law, never produced devotion, trust, and obedience. But by his grace, God can. He can do what the law never will. He has the ability. And I, I think we get to see that back in Exodus, in this first generation. God will fulfill his gracious promises to Abraham. Exodus 32, 11 through 15. But Moses implored, implored the Lord his God and said, now he's interceding. There was an initial intercession on the mountain when God first um, tells him of this problem. And, and Moses implores him, God, don't, don't, don't do what you're about to do. He says, he, he says, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Listen, this, this verse is so important. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars of heaven. All this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he spoke, had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. He comes down the mountain. He sees the idolatry. And what does he do? He throws those things on the ground and they break. The covenant is broken. But Moses is pleading with the Lord. He pleads with the Lord, not on the basis of their worth or their value. Not on the basis of this covenant's value. But on the basis of God swearing by himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me just show you how, how, how explicit this gets and how far it goes. This wasn't just this first generation. But long after them, God continued to preserve Israel because of his promise to Abraham. Second Kings 13, 23. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned to them because of his covenant. Not with Moses. 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. God did not protect and preserve Israel because of his covenant with them, which was broken. They broke it. But because of his promises to Abraham. As God's covenant partner, like Adam, Israel failed and proved the law would never produce devotion, trust, or obedience, but by God's grace. But by his grace, God can. Exodus 34, again, back to this people who have just entered into and then broken covenant with God just a few weeks later. Moses is back up on the mountain after seeing. God calls him up. He says, hey, bring two, cut out two stone tablets. Bring them up to me. Moses does. He arrives at the top of the mountain. He meets God. And it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This isn't anybody else's word about God. This is God's word about God. This is his testimony of himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am gracious, I am merciful, I am slow to anger. I am abounding in hesed, covenant faithfulness. The thing that I demanded of these people is exactly who I am. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, now, if now I have found favor in your sight, if now I can receive your grace, if you will put your grace on me, it's a plea to God to be gracious to him. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, Lord, go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people and, and, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us, take us for your inheritance. Let us be your treasured possession. Let us be your kingdom of priests. Let us be your holy nation. And he said, this is God's response. Behold, I am making a covenant. And what's interesting, now I've told you repeatedly that the, the, the phraseology established, the, the, the phraseology used when God enters into covenant with people demonstrates whether it's new or old. This is the, this is the wording. This is the language. That, that's, it's a new covenant. And, it, and, and though it seems like it's the same covenant, it's an absolutely new covenant because the covenant was broken. The covenant was demolished. They, they, they'd been done with it. They rejected and rebelled it. And God renews it. He stands in this place and he says to these people who broke his covenant, Today I am making covenant a covenant with you. Before all your people I will do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. Such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. He is going to work in might and power greater than he did before. Greater than when he said let there be light. Greater than when he did when he formed the earth and then filled the earth. Greater than when he spoke and, and entered into relationship with Adam. Greater than he did when he flooded the earth and saved Noah and his family through it. Greater and more powerful than delivering e- Israel out of Egypt. God is going to do these works. And the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with God is going to do something that blows their mind. That's greater than anything they'd ever seen. Now, it could be that he's referring to the fact that he's actually going to be gracious and lead these rebellious, rejecting people into the promised land. It could be that he's going to continue to exercise power and drive nations out before them. That could be. 
Or it could be the fact that through Israel, a rebellious people who had rejected his glory, who would go their own way and defy his authority, and who would not entrust themselves repeatedly to his power, that even through someone like this, he would bring a faithful covenant partner, his only begotten son, who was born under the law, but brought freedom from the law. I think it's probably both and. Because God was gracious every step of the way with the nation of Israel. And he didn't smite them because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they saw him work in power. But nothing in comparison to God himself, the Son, second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh and dwelling among us and living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death for the sins of the world. And raising again on the third day in victory, promising life to all who believe. That's a work of power. That's a work that's done through these people and with these people. Though they didn't deserve it. And there's even passages, Psalm 95, that speaks that this generation will never enter God's rest. They are condemned. But God is God and his plan will work. So unlike Israel, we live on the other side of that work that he did through them. He doesn't just demand an external exchange or just an external adherence. But when we come to Christ, he, he, he provides for us. He, he works in us an internal transformation. So, such that if you have come to Christ, if you have trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, if you have confessed your sin and trusted in him, the Bible calls you a new creation. Paul calls you a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. John says that we're born again. We're no longer who we used to be. We're born of the Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesians that we are made alive in Christ. That we were dead, but now we're alive. If you've come to Him, this is the reality. And He has taken your heart, and He has circumcised your heart, and He has cut away the deadness, and He has made it alive. To give it new desires. And, and as a result of this new life and these new desires, He gives you new responsibilities. So He doesn't apply these commands... I need to say that differently because everybody's responsible to this, but only some of us are able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He has given you a spirit and a life in which you can do that. And there's a dead person inside of you, the, the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul, but there is a living person who wants nothing but his glory if you are in Christ. You're to love your neighbor as yourself, entrusting yourself as, as you have been loved, entrusting yourself to his power so that you can love like him, even your enemies. Everybody's supposed to, but those of us who have come to Christ can. And there's a person, a dead person inside, passion of the flesh, waging war against our soul. But there's a living person who's been made alive in Christ that wants nothing more than to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves as we entrust ourselves to him. And make disciples. 
make disciples. Proclaiming the glories of God. To live obedient to his authority. I know. There's a dead person in you. The passions of the flesh that wage war against the soul. But if you've come to Christ, there is a living, breathing, spiritual person who wants nothing more than to see God glorified, not just in your life, but the lives of others. Who wants to obey the command of Jesus to go and make disciples and teach others to obey him and uh, and submit to his authority. Whatever's going on around you, it doesn't matter how bad life appears to be all around you. It doesn't matter what decision you face. It doesn't matter how big or how small the circumstance seems to be. We can give ourselves to these things. He doesn't need us to be powerful because he is. He doesn't need us to have all the answers because he does. He doesn't need you to be God because he's God. He just says, trust me. Entrust yourself to me. Obey me. There's not a long list of commands to figure out. There's not a complex understanding to to live to his glory over others. But boy, we make it hard. And there's not a moment of our life that has ever lived outside of his power. So every difficulty we face, he's led us there. And we can know that at any moment he is able to deliver this is the hope of those who are in Christ this is the responsibility of those who are in Christ not because we've come through the law but because in Christ we've been made able to live obedient to his law but if you've never come to Christ if you've never trusted in him place your faith in him and him alone the law will never do what only God can do through his grace and is doing every day in the lives of people through his son, Jesus Christ. So trust in him. Entrust yourself to his power by faith. Let's pray.